So would anyone ask anything at all? Don't have to worry about, you know, saying something that's um, basic or... Yes. Okay, so the question was, uh, given that at least um, but, uh, as Buddhists understand, believe the Buddha was blessed with all kinds of supernatural powers and godlike powers, he never claimed to be God or a God. Um, <clears throat> in fact, the, uh, the Buddha's teaching career began with failure. And it's something that uh, few Buddhists talk about. But um, directly um, following his enlightenment, he um, he was unsure whether there was anybody really who could understand what he had to teach. Um, but eventually, he he was persuaded, or he he decided um, that there were people in the world who could understand. It's a beautiful phrase in Nepali. It's a people with little dust in their eyes. So it means like most people are like covered, their eyes covered in dust or uh, are asleep, basically. And the word Buddha means the awakened one, someone who's wakened up to the truth of things. So he, Buddha uh, realized that others could awake up, wake up like he woke up. And uh, on, and so he thought, well, who who could understand what I've got to teach? And then he so he had the psychic powers, and he realized his his first teachers, his meditation teachers from years ago, uh, could probably understand because they're already very developed in meditation. But then he realized again through his psychic powers that they'd already passed away. And then he, he thought, well, who else could I should I start with? And then he thought his former companions and students, his five five companions who'd followed him from his hometown and been through all his adventures and, and through all the ascetic practices. Um, because in those days in India, um, the, the main uh, spiritual practice was based upon an idea that the spirit is imprisoned within the body. So if you make the body very weak, then the spirit can emerge. So there were all these ascetic practices of fasting and and um, going without sleep and going without this and going without that. And the Buddha did all those things um, for a number of years. And then he realized that it wasn't working. And so he changed his 
um, his way of practice. And he recalled um, an event from his childhood where at a big ceremony he sat under a tree and just started to meditate in a very natural kind of way on his breath. And he experienced a kind of peace uh, that he hadn't realized in the past few years of ascetic practices. So he decided just to very humbly like go back to his beginnings. But his friends um, felt that he was giving up because he was brought up as a prince and the astrologers had forecast greatness for him. You know, either he would become a great king or he'd become a great religious teacher. So when he gave up his ascetic practices, his, his students, they all thought, yeah, he's had enough. He's going to go back to the palace. He's all right. He's a prince. You know, we've given up our youth and given up our lives for this. We don't have anything to go back to. So they were very disappointed in him. Um, and they went off like two or three hundred kilometers away to a place where all the ascetics like to gather, a place called Sarnath, the deer park. And so when the Buddha um, decided he would go and teach them, he walked uh, from Bodhgaya, where he was enlightened, uh, two three hundred kilometers along the way. And as he was walking along, he met a man on the path. So this was his first ever teaching, you know, um, really as a, as a Buddha. And this man on the path, he, he was so taken by the Buddha's radiance and beauty. And he said, what are you? And are you a man? And the Buddha said, no. And he said, are you a god? And he said, no. He said, well, what are you? He said, I'm a Buddha. And of course, this man didn't know what Buddha meant. And, and so he said, yeah, maybe you are. And he just walked off. Yeah. And so then that was, um, you know, when the Buddha decided maybe rather than just saying, I'm a Buddha, he had to come up with something a little bit more structured, which was, you know, when he eventually met the five ascetics, he gave this beautiful, profound talk on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which was the structure underlying all his teachings for the rest of his life, 45 years. But the... Um, so the Buddha was a Buddha. And in the Buddhist teachings, at least... Um, it's thought that he was the teacher of gods and men, or gods and human beings. So all the, the devas, the gods and the Brahma gods, the gods of all the different levels of heaven, looked to the Buddha as a teacher. So he, he wasn't a god, he was a teacher of gods. Uh, now, the, in, the, in the 19th century, um, the time when most of Buddhist um, Asia was under the control, the governance of Western powers and a lot of Christian missionary activity. 
And then there arose something we call like scientific Buddhism. And this is um, a movement in which people um, were looking back to strengthen their roots um, to, and to oppose the Christian missionaries. So they were trying to emphasize all the ways in which Buddhism was rational, scientific, realistic, in contrast with what they proposed was an irrational, emotional uh, Christianity. So this this side of Buddhism was really emphasized. You know, this is like very rational and reasonable and scientific. Um, and so that whole side of the Buddha was kind of downplayed, the sort of the miraculous side. Um, but it's, it is um, very much part um, of our understanding of the Buddha. Um, for instance, on the night of his enlightenment, um, his enlightenment itself took place just before dawn, and he'd been sitting in meditation from the previous evening. Now in India, they divide nighttime into three periods. They call the three watches of the night. So from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. is the first watch of the night. 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is the second watch of the night. And 2 p.m. 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the third watch of the night. So Buddhist monks, like myself, always told that two, the middle watch of the night is for sleeping. 10 to 2 a.m. That's the time when you should rest. And any <clears throat> and any time outside of that is like bonus. But that's your your basic um, time for rest. Um, and, and in the first watch of the night, that first period, the, um, the Buddha had one great realization, um, and that was he could remember numerous, uh, numberless past lives. So, you know, sometimes you read things about past lives, someone could remember they were Cleopatra or they were something, it was sort of kind of corny and, you know, but the Buddha, could remember millions of past lives, millions. And you could imagine what a kind of revolutionary, um, incredible impact that would have upon your whole idea of who you are if you could remember millions of past lives. Um, and in the middle watch of the night, he, had a, uh, he developed the ability to uh, see the movement of beings through all the different realms in the universe and how and why people move between hell realms and human realm and animal realm and heaven realm and godly realm. So he understood, uh, like as a direct experience, the, the working of what we call the law of Kama. Mm. So, you know, these two knowledges, you know, they already, you know, would take you you know, to a realm beyond what we would normally try as godlike knowledge. Uh, but it was the third period of the night when he realized the complete freedom from suffering and all its causes that was the culmination, and became, at which point he became a Buddha. Now, the Buddha's teaching was focused on freedom, inner freedom, inner liberation. And he was very clear that psychic powers, um, there, there's never any question at that time 
and in that culture that these things existed because there were so many people meditating and there were so many people with these experiences. It wasn't like a, you know, a question, are these things real? Um, but the, the important, um, uh, issue was really how, what should your relationship between, uh, be towards those things? How much interest should you take in them? And the Buddha said that they're dangerous, um, because it's not like you're, you want to meditate and practice to, to become, to change yourself from an ordinary person to like a superman and to have all these special powers and be special. Uh, because being someone who's special is just as much suffering as being someone who thinks themselves ordinary. It's just a different kind of suffering. Okay. As long as you have an identify, identification, I'm like this, um, then you're suffering. Okay. So the Buddha said, being able to read other people's minds or to levitate or, yeah, so what? Basically, that's the Buddhist attitude. Yes, they, it's possible, but so what? Why would you want it? Why would you want those things? So, um, they're not goals of spiritual life. And in fact, one of the important rules for a Buddhist monk is if a Buddhist monk has such a power, he's forbidden from revealing it to someone who's not a monk. Uh, you can only talk about it amongst monks because you don't want people to become fascinated or inspired by things like this. They want to be inspired by the teachings and by the practice, not by something that you could, these days with CGI, you know, you can watch the movie. You know, anyone can do it. And um, Yeah, so the Buddha said that his, you know, the wonder, uh, you know, the most wonderful thing about the Buddha was his ability to teach people to find freedom. It wasn't his ability to do all these incredible things. There are very few cases when the Buddha actually, in all those years, used uh, or demonstrated his spiritual, his psychic powers. And they're very interesting why he chose these special cases. One was when he visited home and uh, he wanted to teach his dad. Because everybody knows the people who have the most fixed ideas about who you are are your parents. You know, they think, oh, I know you, you've never changed, you're always like this, you'll always be like this. No one knows you like your mum and dad. Um, so when the Buddha returned home, Everybody else says, wow, you know, Buddha. And his dad just says, oh, you know, it's my son come home. Why is he dressed like that, shaved head, you know? So, so um, you know, that's kind of normal. And, and, and so the Buddha um, performed the most difficult feat of psychic power because there is, you know, sort of di different levels. And the most difficult one is to levitate in the air and make one half of your body fire and the other half water. And that's the most, you know, wonderful thing. And uh, so the Buddha did this for his dad. And his dad saw it, and I think he sort of, yeah, that's not the son that I used to know, you know. And, and so the idea is, if someone's mind is so kind of rigid and decided, they can't accept new ideas. And so sometimes you have to give them a shock. 
to put them in the state in which they can learn something. And that this was the only time when the Buddha would use the psychic powers. The other time that everybody, many people know, is with the murderer, Angulimala, who used to kill people and then cut off their fingers, and he had a like a necklace of fingers. So he's like the first serial killer that we that we're familiar with in world literature, I think. And he um, and the Buddha went to teach him. But of course, as someone who's just caught up in killing and collecting fingers and wearing them around his neck, you know, he's not going to want to listen to a talk. Um, so the Buddha uh, walked in front of him, and and so he chased after him with a big. You've probably seen pictures, haven't you? And and but he can't catch up with him. You know, it's like really weird because he's running and the Buddha's walking and he's not catching up with him. And he says, what's going on? And he says, stop, stop. And the Buddha says, I've stopped already. You're the one who hasn't stopped. Um, and, and, and because it was just such a totally weird and un, uh, inexplicable situation, it made him stop and think, what's going on here? And then the Buddha could teach him. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons why this has always been such a um, central or famous episode in the Buddha's life is because it's a good story, but also because um, it shows that even someone who's killed people still has within them the capacity or the potential for enlightenment. So, okay, that's an example of a very long answer to a question which was more or less like a talk, okay? But we can have shorter answers if you prefer. Does anyone else have anything they'd like to? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just as a, um, a slight digression before I answer your question, because it's quite um, interesting. Um, when the uh, a lot of what we know about Buddhism in India now um, is due to the work of British civil servants who went there during the, the period of the British Raj and became very interested in um, the history of India and a lot of the, the discovery of major um, uh, Buddhist sites um, was due to the work of, of these British civil servants and the translation of the, like the Ahsoka columns and so many different historical monuments. But when they were first, um, first discovered Buddhism and they didn't really know what it was, they came across all these Buddha, um, images and they had these like curly hair and they were like really, um, astounded. How, how is this possible? You know, because no Indians had this curly hair. Um, and then one British scholar, uh, came forth with a theory. 
Um, and this was the like accepted theory for some 20, 30 years that the Buddha was a king from Ethiopia. Yeah. Who came to India and conquered India. And then afterwards they made him into a god. Um, because they saw it like in Ethiopia, I why Ethiopia, but that's where they said they had like curly hair. And so they thought the Buddha was from Ethiopia. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the Buddhism at the time of the Buddha, um, the, like the orthodox or the, the majority religion was Brahmanism. Um, and Brahmanism um, is not one and the same thing as what we nowadays call Hinduism. Uh, so although Hindus you know, don't like, probably wouldn't agree with this, I would suggest the historical evidence is very clear. And um, Brahmanism was characterized by what we call the caste system, where people are socially divided into different castes. And you're born into a caste and you live in that caste for your life. So there's the priestly caste, the warrior caste, the, uh, the merchant caste and the worker caste. And then you have other people who are so low they're not even considered part of the system. It's called the, <clears throat> now, um, the Buddha, uh, found that there were a number of teachings in the Brahmin religion, which, um, didn't conflict with his teaching, and he gave them credit for that. But he was very critical of the caste system because it opposes the, the fundamental principle of Buddhism um, that you are what you do, basically. You're, you, know, you are a, um, a good person or a bad person or whatever, not because of the the caste you were born into or the social the social class you were born into your family name um but what you do how you live your life so it's a teaching of action and the education of action whereas the caste system is saying basically who you are is a function of uh what class what group of people you're born into so the buddha was very critical of the caste system. And for this reason, the, he was not popular with the Brahmins. Now, Buddhism spread throughout India um, until there, uh, and there was uh, right from the beginning a reaction from the Brahmins. And there's periods of uh, suppression uh, or repression of, of Buddhists um, by Brahmin kings. Uh, for instance, in Bodh Gaya, uh, where the Buddha was enlightened, um, one Brahmin king that killed all the monks and then cut down the Bodhi tree um, where the Buddha was enlightened, dug out the roots and burned them and then put poison down um, and and so there's like long history of uh, repression of Buddhists by the Brahmins. Um, but the, another key um, key event was the reforms led by a great um, Brahmin teacher in the south of India called Shankaracharya, 
and he adopted many of the most popular of the Buddhist practices and incorporated them into the Brahmin tradition, uh, particularly like vegetarianism, which we now associate with what we call Hinduism, which was not a, uh, originally a tradition, but it was one that became popularized by the Mahayana Buddhists. Um, and, and so taking a number of the um, most popular Buddhist traditions and, and revamping their, they'll have something that we can, I mean, this is very general, we can call Hinduism, which got back many of the uh, converts to Buddhism. But there were also internal weaknesses in the Buddhist community and some corruption over the period of hundreds of years. Um, and uh, and then, really, the uh, to cut a long story short, the, the final blow to Buddhism in northern India was the um, was the um, uh, the Muslims coming in from eastern Turkey and just destroying uh, all Buddhist monuments and Buddhist images, and basically killed everyone who wouldn't um, convert to Islam. So that that was like, but it wasn't that like Buddhism disappeared from India because of the cruel Muslims, but because it was already, you know, it been a long history, uh, both of repression from other groups and also corruption and weakness within the Buddhist community itself. So it's a number of different factors. Um, but the... Um, it, don't forget also that, that um, Buddhism flourished in India for well over a thousand years. So it's not like it was just a you know, short period. Uh, and then, of course, spread to um, and through Sri Lanka to Southeast Asia. So um, tradition has not um, disappeared. And now, at the present day, there's a revival of Buddhism in India, um, which is chiefly due to... Um, a man called Dr. Ambedkar, who was from the um, uh, the Chandala, the 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 the, uh, the group of people that are what do they what do they call them? The um, without the casteless people, not even within the caste system. And uh, Ambedkar got a scholarship to Britain. and was a lawyer and was responsible for drafting the Indian Constitution. Um, and he studied the different religions, and he decided the way to take people out of the, their dire situation in in uh, in the Hindu um, culture was to become Buddhist. So there were mass conversions uh, of Buddhists from the early late 40s, early 50s, um, which has been going on until present day. So we are now in India. We call like the new Buddhist movement um, is is quite large and um, significant, politically significant as well. Indeed. Okay. Yeah.
Sorry, you have to speak up a bit louder. Okay, well, that's a big question. Um, okay, well, well um, first of all, the um, first of all, concerning uh, Buddha images and the representations of the Buddha, statues and so on, um, in the first days of Buddhism, uh, we didn't have any of those at all. Um, if you go to a place called Sanchi in central India, where it's one of the oldest Buddhist monuments, you'll see these stone friezes, and uh, it's uh, um, and you can see that there was a taboo against representing the Buddha's image, just like there is in Islam to this day. And there would be like a like a chariot and then like a space where the Buddha would be sitting, or you know, just in like an empty space would represent the Buddha. <clears throat> but at the same time, even at the time of the Buddha, people would go to see the Buddha and want to pay their respects to him. Um, and and they'd be very disappointed if he wasn't there. And so uh, Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, such a shame when people come and they want to pay their respects to you and, and they don't see you because you're away. And the Buddha said, well, they can pay their respect to the Bodhi tree because this was where I was enlightened. So this is a symbol of my enlightenment. So they can bow means that they can show their respect to the symbol of enlightenment. And that, that custom is still, to this day, is very strong in Sri Lanka, like bowing to the Bodhi tree. Not so much in, in Thailand or even Burma, I think. Um, but as Buddhism spread, it came into contact with the major uh, political uh, force of those days and military force, which was the Greeks. Um, and in what's present-day Pakistan, Afghanistan, was a country called Gandhara. And the Buddhist um, Gandhara came into contact with the Greek culture there, and the Greeks had the statues of Apollo. Uh, and so the Buddhists thought, well, that's really cool. And so they copied, like, the statue of Apollo, but they make for, like, Buddha. Yeah. And so that, that was how Buddha images first came to be. But the idea of Buddha images is that the Buddha, the Buddha said the Buddha is the Dhamma, okay? So it's not like a, a, a person. And, and the three 
qualities that express Buddhahood or what it means to be a Buddha. One is wisdom, one is compassion, and the third is purity or freedom from defilements and, and negative mental states. So these are abstract things, you know, there's not something that you can see and look at. And so the idea of Buddha images was to create a figure that expresses these qualities. So if you have real trouble trying to, you know, now the Buddha's not alive and you can't go and bow to him yourself or learn to him, you have something that can remind you of wisdom and compassion and purity. And this was um, the, the rationale and why Buddha images were, were um, sculpted and, and carved. And this one is from Burma, actually, up here. Um, and used throughout the Buddhist world. But of course, as you see, Buddhism is a, is a different kind of religion from the religions that grew up in the Middle East. This family of religions in the Middle East of Judaism, Christianity, Islam. It's like one family. They share some books together, very similar idea of what a religion is. And we can summarize those religions, that religious family, as they are basically belief systems. You have to believe in the dogmas of those religions before you can be a member of that religion. And so it's become customary for us to understand religion as being a set of beliefs. You adopt a set of beliefs to become a member of a religion. But Buddhism is a different kind of religion. It's a different family. It's a and it's why many people who are, you know, are followers of the belief system religions, they say, oh, Buddhism is not a religion, it's a philosophy or it's a way of life because it doesn't fit in their category or their understanding of what a religion is. But we might say, well, who are you to decide what a religion is? You know, why, why does the Western world, you know, have the power to decide on the categories and, and, and uh, what is and what is not a religion. What we can say is it's a different kind of religion, and it's a religion as education system. So the uh, Buddhism is essentially not a belief system, it's an education system, okay? This is a fundamental uh, to understanding what Buddhism is about. So that being the case, it's a lot harder to take care of Buddhism and transmit Buddhism, because it's not a matter of saying, okay, if you want to be a Buddhist, you have to believe this, 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 and this. You just believe these things and just do these things, you're a Buddhist. Um, Buddhism means you have to put some effort into changing your life in terms of educating how you relate to your family and society. You have to learn how to train your mind. You have to learn to educate your thinking. These are fundamental to a, a Buddhist life. But obviously, over the course of centuries, there have been times when Buddhism becomes weak uh, and the education is not being followed by the monks and the nuns and is not being transmitted to the lay Buddhists well. At that time, other kinds of beliefs can come in and, and mix up with the Buddhist beliefs. And so one of the essential or, or most fundamental um, desires of human being is to have somebody sort things out for us, someone who's perfect, someone who has loves us and has power 
someone we can pray to and say, please do this, please do that. So inevitably, in the course of Buddhist history, in almost all Buddhist countries, you found people starting to pray to Buddha images. Um, but it's important to understand that that is not what Buddha images are for. Um, it's, the, it's the opposite. They're there for us to to pay our respects, to humble ourselves. So when we humble ourselves to a Buddha image, means we're saying, I'm humbling myself before wisdom, compassion, and purity. Um, and the and the most perfect and beautiful example of a human being expressing in their life wisdom, purity, and compassion was the Buddha. Okay, And he was the teacher and person who explained um, the way to educate ourselves and to develop within ourselves wisdom, purity, and compassion. Okay, so if someone is bowing, you know, bowing to Buddha and say, "May I pass my exams?" or "May I have a child?" or you know, it, it's normal. Yeah, but but how in most Buddhist countries is handled is you have like a a non-Buddhist shrines, you know, like uh, Brahmin shrines or Nats or, or or whatever, and you you want to ask for things. Don't ask for the Buddha. You are going to ask for those things. So it's like you know, like a different um, a different ministry. You know, you go to you go you go over there for that. Okay. Your second question was about what was the second question? Oh, why did I become Buddhist when this? There's a whole supermarket to choose from. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, I was brought up in England, um, but England now is is a very, or even from when I grew up in the 60s, 70s, it was um, uh, already quite a secular country, which means that uh, the influence of Christianity was getting weaker and weaker, and in middle-class families, uh, very few people. I mean, certainly amongst my generation, young people, it's like not cool, you know, they could say to <laughs> go to church. And uh, um, But I, I myself had never had any kind of feeling of connection with Christianity since I was a child. I, I just couldn't, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I just couldn't believe it, basically. And I was, I, was, I, I spent a, I was very um, ill as a child. I had asthma, so I spent a lot of time. I was more studious than most boys because I didn't go to school. Basically, you know, if you go to school, you just play sports and play around. But because I was at home, I read a lot. So I was very kind of thought thinking a lot, and it didn't make sense. The teachings, you know, the particularly the existence of suffering and an all-powerful, all-loving God. How can you explain all the suffering in the world? And I didn't think that ever really been explained, at least to my satisfaction. So I had a lot of, uh, I just think, that, well, you know, I don't see a need to believe in things to lead a good life. I can lead a good life without having to believe in a book. Um, but as I, um, as I got older and in my teens, the questions that really came up in my mind is, what is a good life? You know, is that is that even a, like a reasonable question? You know, is that does that make sense? Can you ask that question, or can you say this is a better life than this life, or this is the best life? So, what what is the best life? You know, 
what are the criteria? What, what would you use to make that kind of judgment? This is better than that. Um, and that, that was like one question very important for me. Another question was, uh, why is there so much suffering in the world? Um, why, why is there so much cruelty and oppression and injustice and, and so on? And does it have to be like this? Is it just something you have to put up with? Or is there something that can be done about it? And if there is something that can be done about, what should you do about it? What is your responsibility as a human being uh, regarding the suffering in the world? So these were the questions that I didn't think had anything to do with religion or what I thought religion meant. But I thought, I've got to sort these things out, you know, before I make any real choices about how I'm going to live my life. So I started to read a lot of philosophy and psychology and all kinds of things. And then, you know, I came across teachings of the Buddha. And, you know, from first pages, I said, oh, yeah, it's just common sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just real, this is what I've been looking for. So I, I was, you know, really um, filled with faith through reading a book that answered the questions about life that, um, I felt was most important to ask. And so I felt I had a, a direction in my life from that point. Um, and then after I finished high school, I, I worked and saved some money, and then I went to India, and I was traveling and uh, around in India and Asia for a couple of years, um, trying to find out more and to... Um, and the more I studied and the more experiences I had, uh, the more convinced I became that, that uh, Buddhist teachings were authentic and real and practical and that I wanted to give my life to them. So, so your third question was... Was that the third or fourth question? The third question about the whole universe. Yeah, well, it's not in Buddhist texts. But I'm my I'm of the opinion. Um, well, I I go along with the idea of multiple universes um, and multiple Buddhas. So I don't have any um, proof of that. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Yeah. For for one for one thing, if you compare, say, the Buddha with Jesus or some of the other religious teachers. Like Jesus was a poet, okay, wonderful poet. But Jesus would say something like, you want to go to the kingdom of, he kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a small child. Okay, it's like beautiful. A Buddha would never say that. You know, the Buddha would say, if you want to go to heaven, you know, you can adopt some of the characteristics of a child, like point one, point two, point three, point four. But you should not be like a child in this and this and this and this, you see. So he wasn't a poet. He was very kind of precise and scientific. So when the Buddha uses some of the similes the Buddha gives, these are not just for poetic effect, emotional effect. And the Buddha said that the tears, if you were to collect all the tears that have fallen from your eyes in previous lives, the water would exceed that of all the oceans in the world. Now, that's that's either like poetry, yeah, or 
it, he's making a, a real statement. Now, if he's a real statement, there's no way, given what we know about the history of this world and the length of time that human beings have lived in this world and the number of generations, that that could be possible. You know, even if you were to be crying all day, every day for the rest of your life for hundred lives, you know, you wouldn't have enough to fill even, you know, a pond probably, or at least a sea, let alone all the seas in the world. So my, my hypothesis is that we're talking about multiple universe, um, and, and it's including all the universes, all the love pastimes and all the different universes. Uh, Pardon? Why not? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, what do you mean by gods anyway? Why, why would you, what's your supporting evidence for such a figure? Well, it's also, you know, we're always, this is a kind of a very old problem, isn't it? If you say that there must have been someone creating the universe, then there must have been somebody before the universe. Okay, well, where did he come from or she come from? Yeah. Well, so he must or she must have had a creator. But if he and she had a creator, well, who was their creator? You have this infinite regress, you see. So what the Buddha says is the idea that things need a beginning it's just a human idea. What, what is there anywhere that you can point to and says that has a beginning or a creator? Is there anything you can see that, that's actually made from nothing? You know, what, what we can see is different elements come together temporarily, you know, and into a form of a microphone or into the form. But there must be things there already for that to be created. So the Buddha, you know, if you believe what the Buddha said that he could remember millions of past lives and millions of like eons. Now the idea of an eon is if you can imagine the time, you imagine like a, a mountain which is like 15 kilometers long, 15 kilometers wide, 15 kilometers high, made of metal. And once every hundred years a bird flies by with a feather and the feather of the bird just uh, buffers against that iron mountain. So the amount of time that it would take for that feather, once a hundred years, to wear down a mountain 15 kilometers long, wide, and high is one eon. Okay, And the Buddha could remember many eons. And he said, there is no discoverable beginning of all this. So he didn't actually say there's no beginning, but he's saying that going back, you know, through the innumerable Big Bangs and universes uh, coming together and dissolving, there's no discoverable beginning of this. So, you know, the, the, so we're in the realm of speculation here. There's no way we can prove this. But what we can say is, on what do we base the idea that everything should have a beginning? Why? I mean, everybody says it's obvious, but is it really obvious? You, you think about it. Yeah. Yes. 
It's all right. You don't need to stand up. You can sit down there. This, these are for historical, uh, social, cultural reasons. Um, big topic, but I'll. Um, Buddhism, after the Buddha passed away, then uh, Buddhism spread out over a big area and developed different schools and different traditions. So the tradition um, in Thailand. Um, comes from Sri Lanka, which came from northern India in the time of the Emperor Soka. This tradition we call Theravada, or used to be called Hinayana, but it's not such a nice word, it's a Theravada, um, is characterized by its very uh, conservative. And the idea, under the basic idea is to preserve the teachings of the historical Buddha. Okay. Now, when Buddhism um, spread northwards into uh, Tibet, China, and all in, into uh, Afghanistan, Iran, and all the those Stan countries, Kazakhstan, they were all Mahayana Buddhist at one time. Then those those monks um, in those schools. They, their underlying, I, we call them Mahayana, but there are many different schools. Like, uh, Mahayana is not like one, one school, like Theravada. Mahayana is like umbrella term for many different groups with di kind of uh, different teachings, but all with the basic idea of practicing to be free of suffering. Um, there they found different, uh, cultural traditions. And they were much more liberal or willing to adapt to the prevailing culture. For instance, in India, the tradition of the monk going on arms round in the morning or, or for the lay people to support the, the spiritual people with their basic need for food and clothing is very deep in, in Buddhism from before the time of the Buddha. <clears throat> but when the Buddhist monks went to China, they found it was a big problem. When they went on arms round, Chinese people thought they were lazy. Why don't you work like anybody else? Because they didn't have that tradition. So over a course of hundred more than 100 years, um, the the decision was to give up on the arms round. 
So big change for the monks now. They have to become self-sufficient. Now, for the monks on alms round, the idea is you you don't make uh, don't be fussy. You don't make a problem for the people. They're so generous. You don't say, I want this food. I don't want that food. Okay, so if they want to put meat in your bowl, it's okay. You don't have to eat it. You're not compulsory, you know, to eat it. But you shouldn't refuse the gift of faith. Um, but when the monks go to China, now they're self-sufficient. Now they have control. They can say, okay, we don't need, we don't want to raise cattle and kill animals for food. We're going to grow crops. And so vegetarianism became the standard because the monks are receiving food in a different way. They're growing food themselves, not dependent on, on offering from lay people who are not vegetarian. Um, the, um, in Tibet, then the, uh, whereas in China, then the monks have, are facing the, the culture of Confucianism and Taoism, and so making some um, some changes and some adaptation over long period, exceeding that influence. In Tibet, then there is the the pre-existing Bun religion. It's like a magical religion, and so the first Buddhist uh, groups were very much influenced by this, particularly the Nimapa sect. And in that sect, the monk would uh, would marry. Um, but in the Dalai Lama sect, they don't marry. They're celibate. So that's a reform sect. In Japan, um, after some hundreds of years, there was a, a group, uh, some groups, uh, some uh, Buddhist leader who said, now this is a corrupt period of time. We can't become enlightened like the monks in the old days. We should just be humble and accept that. And we shouldn't be celibate. We monks, we should just get married like and be just be humble, normal human being, but uh, be a spiritual leader in the community. So that was when the tradition of some sect of Japanese Buddhists, um, the monks became priests. They got married. But the majority did not for a long time. But in Japan, monks became very involved in politics. And in the 19th century, there was um, a, a military coup and the military government, the Meiji Restoration, um, took place. And they wanted to uh, reduce the political power influence of the monks. And the method was to make a law, make it compulsory, all the monks had to get married. So this is why in Japan, nearly all the monks get married. And because and once you get married, then everything changes and you have family and you have family responsibilities and you have temples and you pass your temple on to your younger son and the whole strength of the institution, um, it, it, the political strength fell away. So this is reason why some Buddhist countries, the monks get married and some they don't. But in, in Theravada, we're still following the teachings of, of the Buddha, historical Buddha. And, and part of becoming a monk means that you're giving up family life.
the monk join the different parts of the Buddhism? Same as if they are ready to be monk, but they still have a six with the lady. So, have some effect to themselves? Uh, I mean, which way is for... Well, you, you know, as a Buddhist, you can choose which which kind of Buddhism, you know, you you're um, inspired by. Um, but the thing is, you 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 have to be, you know, have integrity um, with regard to the the kind of Buddhism that you join. So when I I become a Buddhist monk, then I make a you know, a, a firm vow or promise that I give up all sexual activity. And in, in my tradition, if uh, a monk has any sexual relation with the woman, then from that very moment, even if nobody knows, he's no longer a true monk. He's an imposter. Um, and he makes every t if a, if a monk is to have the sex, sexual relation with a woman is still wear a robe and people come and bow to him or he takes food or offerings is very bad karma, really bad karma. Uh, so if, if, um, your tradition you join says you want to become a monk, you know, you can't get married. Okay. You make that promise and you keep it. But if you want to become a priest and lead a more, uh, spiritual life, but you still would like a family life, then there are Buddhist sects that allow you to do that, so you would join that one. Uh. Yes. Yeah. And the second thing, uh, just I have been here for just six months. So, do uh, so it has been preference, uh, kind of preference, which Buddhist teaching uh, should not bear. In terms of just I was trying to understand uh, yes. Well, yes, I mean, it's interesting. If you were to read a book on Theravada Buddhism, you know, and, and, and some of the books, so it's about suffering and it's like really miserable, you know, and then you, you say, just as an exercise, imagine there was a country and most 95% of the people follow this religion. What do you think they would be like? And you would think reading the book, you know, they'll be really kind of miserable, life suffering, it's miserable, you know. And then you come to Thailand and everybody's smiling and happy. And like you say, put a big value on enjoyment. And, you know, the one that you probably know that if you want to, like, uh, guess the essence of a culture, usually you find the words that you can't translate into other languages. They express that culture the best. And one of the words in Thai is sanuk. You know, you can translate as fun, but it's not really, you know, it's much more profound than that. So this is a sanuk culture, okay? It's a culture which puts a lot of importance on something being sanuk or good fun. So, yeah, um, to what extent that is influenced by Buddhism? 
I think, very complex question. There is um, an excellent history book of Southeast Asia written, I can't remember, an Australian academic. Um, uh, and he writes about the whole of Southeast Asia as being a block. And particularly if you look at um, the time preceding the influence of Christianity and Islam in Southeast Asia, um, you read something about people in Indonesia or Philippines, and you think you're reading about Thailand. So there seemed to be this kind of, you know, uh, fun, easygoing, that kind of thing seemed to be like a, a Southeast Asian phenomena rather than specifically Thai, but with with different cultural and social um, influences. It's a little, not quite so clear-cut these days, but I still think that if you go to, uh, say, uh, Indonesia, like Indonesian uh, Muslim with a Middle Eastern Muslim, same religion but very different kind of feeling, and similarly a, a Thai Christian or a you know an American Christian, it's quite different. So there there is some kind of a basic uh, cultural something just in the genes of the people, if you like, that seems to be independent of of the religion. But I would say that um, because Buddhism is not like a, like I say, a belief system religion, it's always been incredibly tolerant to the extent that there's no word for tolerance in the Thai language. Um, you know, this idea we should promote religious tolerance. You know, why? Well, because we've suffered so much from intolerance in the past. But in Thailand, there's never been a history of intolerance. Um, the idea for a, a Buddhist that you should um, hate somebody or should try to change somebody because they have a different religion or a different belief or a different sexual orientation is very alien to Thai culture. So for that reason, it's very kind of open. But because it's so open, sometimes, you know, it's too, too open and it's kind of really kind of sloppy and, and you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that that's that's the kind of uh, open-mindedness that is very much part of Thai culture, which I think you can relate to Buddhism in terms of its attitude to other belief systems, other religions, other... Uh, people who are not the same as you, basically. Um, as far as the things not to do, um, five five things are the basic Buddhist code for lay people. One is killing, harming. Second is stealing. Third is sexual misconduct, which means uh, adultery, rape, sex with underage or people who... Uh, forbidden by law, and any way of cheating on your girlfriend or your boyfriend is law. And the third, fourth is lying, and the fifth is um, taking alcohol or drugs. So those are the five precepts, what we call precepts of a lay Buddhist. Um, but the the most um, in term, so that's uh, like the precepts. But the karma, the like the most extreme. Um, acts that can be performed. Uh, one is uh, killing a mother, killing father, 
or killing an arahant or enlightened being. Um, there are there are two others not going to come up, but those are those are considered to be um, of the worst um, possible effect uh, on on the next life and on uh, and something that you can't remedy. Many bad things, if you change your life, you can remedy and make better. But these three things are are so serious that uh, it's not possible to remedy. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned a lot of uh, things like Brahmin and stuff uh, getting involved with the Thai Buddhism. Mm. Um, and many, I find many people say that these things corrupt the true Buddhism teaching because people use it for Vishwati and for yeah. purposes. Do you think that these things need to be removed? Uh, clarified, please? Yeah, um, I think clarified is the word. I mean, uh, Buddhism is not a. Uh, um, that kind of, you know, crusading religion, you know, they're saying we've got to stamp out heresy in the Buddhist, you know, that's kind of not there at all. But I think that um, because Buddhists are so kind of generally tolerant and open-minded, that when that is com combined with a lack of good education about Buddhist teachings, then you get a lot of non-Buddhist elements mixed up with the Buddhist elements, and people don't really realize. Um, so, and it's the job of the spiritual leaders or professionals like myself to be pointing out, okay, if you want to uh, go and um, light incense and ask um, some deity to... Um, help you pass your exams that well that's your you've got a right to do that who can tell you not to but uh, don't don't think that that's a buddhist practice that's a non-buddhist custom now if you want to combine buddhist customs with non-buddhist customs that's you know that's your freedom i don't think it's such a good idea but i can understand why that might be a uh, temptation mm -hmm. The reason I brought this up is because a lot of people mix this up and it happens into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. That that's why, you know, the I was saying Buddhism has to be the path of education. And and the the question for us is, if we're worried about this, is how to get through to people who do that. And and I think when you say that's wrong, you know that's stupid. That's not Buddhism. You've got it all wrong. That's not a very good way to go about it because people just get defensive and say, "Who are you to tell me? You know, leave me alone." Um, but I think that uh, if you know, if we can recognize, you know, why people do things and acknowledge their stress, their sense of insecurity, or their fears for the future. Um, and um, and recognize when people do um, good things and kind things, um, but then be pointing out, you know, that this, you know, the Buddha taught us to believe um, in the power of our actions, um, and that we change our life for the better with the power of our actions, and that there's no deity there um, that has that kind of power over your life in that way. Um, 
But basically, you know, if there is, just suppose that there is some kind of a deity, a god there, who's interested enough in you <laughs> to want to um, have some mystical effect on your exam results, um, then we say, well, what kind of deity is that? You know, if he's doing it because of something you're offering him, then basically he's taking a bribe. Um, so how is it that, you know, you get very upset about corruption in the civil service, but you're willing to support corruption in the world of the unseen world of deities who live in spirit shrines, you know? Because um, it's the same thing. You know, say, so I'll give you some money, you give me what I want, or I'll give you this and you give me that. So it's kind of like some very worldly kind of exchange. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're putting out, the Buddha has a different idea about why things happen the way they do and, and what to do about it, rather than just hoping that some some mysterious entity is going to sort things out for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, well, first of all, I mean, the thing with proof is, and, you know, we, we talk very glibly about, oh, we need proof. But the question is, what's the, what's the proof that your proof is a legitimate proof? Uh, you understand? That's too philosophical. Okay. Um, let me take a step back. Um, Buddhism, as I say, is like an education system. And it, and, and often people from other religious traditions, they assume it's a belief system. So they say, Oh, you're a Buddhist. That means you believe in reincarnation. Okay. So if you say, yes, you, you're just, you know, you're just falling into a trap because you're accepting their kind of understanding of what your religion is. Um, now for a, for a Buddhist, we start off with the basic thing is belief Believing in something is not the same as knowing something, okay? This is absolutely really, really important to recognize. So let's take the most obvious example, at least for me, for my childhood. When I was a small boy, I had an absolute faith in the existence of Santa Claus, okay? 24th of December, night of Christmas, I couldn't sleep. Just so excited, Santa Claus is going to come down. The, the the chimney and bring my presents, okay? And then after some years, whenever it was, I discovered that there was no such thing as Santa Claus. Now, what that proved to me is that it is possible to have an absolute, unshakable faith in something that is not true. Okay? Would you accept that? Now, you can see now there are many times in the world where we see people who have two opposing beliefs and each one is absolutely convinced that they are true but they don't they can't both be true so if you have mr a and miss and miss b um what we can say is either mr a is is correct and miss b is is mistaken or miss b is is correct and mr a is mistaken or they're both mistaken 
but they can't both be right. So that means that in that case, one of these people absolutely convinced that they're true, that they're right, are wrong. And it's so important to be able to see when you have a really strong faith in something, that that doesn't mean that therefore it is true. It's just a feeling of faith. Now, what many people do is they make this jump. They say, this is true. It's true. And they say, well, how do you know? Because I believe it. I just know in my... What they don't know, that's not knowing. That's believing. Don't mix the two up. They're not the same thing. What you mean is you have no doubts. You believe. Okay? But what become, it becomes like circular reasoning. You say, it's true because I believe it. Yeah, well, why do you believe it? Because it's true. But how do you know it's true? Because I believe it. I believe it because it's true. It's true because I believe it. And and this is, you know, where so many religious people get caught up and why there's so much conflict and killing and, and all the stuff that goes on because people don't make this fundamental distinction between believing something and knowing something and humbly accepting that the fact that you believe doesn't mean, therefore, it is true. It is possible to believe in something that is not true. We have so many examples from study of history or study of the world today. So where, do we, where does that leave us as a Buddhist? You say, oh, you're a Buddhist, you believe. Well, whoa, stop, no. Uh, what I can say about rebirth right now is, I don't know. Is there rebirth? You don't know, do you? No, you don't know. We'll start off there. You don't just start off right there. And why don't start up here? You don't know. Um, do you believe? Yeah. You can say, yeah, I don't know, but I believe. Well, why do you believe? Well, there's a lot of things that encourage my belief that I think are good proofs uh, or support. There are all the teachings of the Buddha. There are many great meditators, monks and nuns who can remember past lives. There are children all around the world uh, who have been uh, proved to, uh, they have been scientifically um, tested and so on. There are books with uh, uh, results of examination of children who remember past lives, usually from the age of three to five, and not only in Buddhist cultures, but non-Buddhist cultures. There are people who uh, remember past lives under hypnosis. Now, the, the, the teachings of the Buddha himself, the, the, the fact that many great meditators, spiritual leaders claim to be able to remember past lives, spontaneous past lives, memory on the part of children and people under hypnosis, are all very strong supports for a belief in rebirth. But they're not a proof in the sense that you don't actually know. But they mean that your belief in rebirth is founded on, on good sense. It's not just, uh, you know, an emotion, but it's, but you're ready to say, yeah, if you can have any, any uh, new information to prove that my, you know, my reasoning is, is for, I'm willing to listen because I don't actually know. And I think that, you know, Part of the problem with um, interface and sort of trying to create harmony between religions is that they start off at the top. You know, start off, 
well, we all really believe in the same thing. We're all just using different language and we can all be friends because actually we're all on the same page, you know. But who know? How could you say that? You know, if you've never reached that level, what you're really saying is, wouldn't it be nice if that was true? Then we wouldn't have to hate each other or... But Buddhism is saying, well, you know, you don't have to believe the same thing to be friends. And why don't we just start off down below? I'm a Buddhist. I believe in rebirth. But, yeah, I don't really know. But, uh, you know, this is the reason I believe. And then if it was a Christian to say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. He's my savior. I don't actually know. But, you know, that's what I believe. And then a Muslim can say, I believe that Allah, there's only one God, his prophet is, is Allah, and so, uh, sorry, his prophet is Muhammad, and I don't really know, but that's what I believe. Then you can have some harmony, not right up there, but right down here. Yeah, none of us know what we're talking about. Yeah. Let's just start off right there from where we can actually agree on something which is not just wishful thinking or idealism, but yeah, we don't actually know. Let's be humble enough to start from there, and I think it might be held to be a, a little bit more harmonious than it is at the moment. Yeah. Hmm? Well, you can't prove um, on in terms of uh, lifetimes, okay, that things happening in your present um, life are due or influenced by things in the past. But that is a reasonable hypothesis. Um, for instance, in case of childhood prodigies or children that are born with bone cancer or AIDS or things like this, we say, well, you know, how do you explain that, you know, from a belief in, in God? You know, if you believe there's only one life um, and and that how can you explain children who are born with most terrible illnesses from, you know, and how can you equate that? So we feel like the idea that there is a causes and conditions from previous lives, uh, it's not like they're, they're being punished, but this is a causal process. That's a Buddhist hypothesis, okay? It's not Buddhist belief, but this is, makes sense to us from what we understand from what the Buddha taught. So we can say, yeah, I, I believe it based on what I've studied, but I don't actually know, okay? Um, but what you can see very clearly is by looking at your life and seeing the effects that your decisions make on the quality of your life, okay? So let's, I'll give you a very simple example. Let's suppose you're, you're in a, in a group and there's some person that you really don't like and they, they act in very, selfish, unpleasant ways. And you think, well, you know, I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm just going to be very patient, not going to say anything. And you just sit there and just try to be patient. And then one day you lose it. You know, it's just too much. And you just, you know, just shout at them or tell them off and come on, you know, grow up or, you know, don't. Okay. Um, now, notice that the next day, that that person acts in the same way, the likelihood that you're going to react in the same way and tell them off or get angry 
is much more now because you've acted upon that impulse and now you've created a habit and it becomes easier and easier to behave in that way every time that you behave in that way. This is karma. So if you, if you speak, if you speak kindly to somebody and you make a practice of speaking kindly, then after a while it becomes, we say, second nature. It's creating good karma. It becomes easier to speak kindly, more kindly than unkindly. It's just cause and effect in daily life. It's just you, uh, if you feed, uh, you know, the, the, the good impulse, the good impulse becomes stronger and the weak impulse becomes weaker. So, like, for instance, if you have a, you take a, like the precepts, say precept not to kill, okay? So, um, you know, first, like a mosquito bites, you know, okay, not going to kill the mosquito. So at first, you know, it's kind of because you've always killed mosquitoes, you feel really weird, you know, and you, you know, and then, but then suppose you can. First time, it's really difficult. Second time, it's easier, it becomes easier and easier till you don't even think about it. You know, why would I kill a mosquito? Well, I can just blow him away or, you know, just do something else. Um, and that's, that's karma is creating new habits. Um, and, as you, as you create that new habit, um, say of not killing something, then all kinds of interesting things happen, like the sense of love and compassion arises naturally when you don't kill things. And your sense of self-respect, you start to like yourself more. You kind of, it real, feels really good to feel, I'm someone who doesn't kill, I'm someone who doesn't uh, hurt other beings, whatever the cause, whatever. And so on a conventional level, you're recreating your whole idea of who you are. Uh, and, you know, in West, they talk a lot about self-esteem. And we talk about self-esteem as, as, as creating, being due to creating wise boundaries for your behavior and then being able to live within those boundaries voluntarily. It has to be voluntary, you know, you don't think, I just, I don't do that because I'm afraid of getting punished, but because this is how you're educating yourself. And then when you know that you can go into a situation where there'll be a lot of temptations or a lot of pressure, but you can still live within your boundaries, then there's a real feeling of self-esteem arises, you know. So this is like, and giving. You know, you know, like in Thailand and in, in Burma, Buddhist countries, there's so much importance on giving. Because the highest level of spiritual development is a renunciation, letting go of attachment, inner attachment to mental states. It's very profound work. But you start that work off in the material realm by learning to share your possessions and to give something away. And so... By doing that, you change your whole relationship to your possessions. Rather than, this is mine, I worked hard, I, now it's mine, I've got it, you know, leave me alone. You know, you find it's kind of magical. You know, you, you get something and, and, you, and you think, wow, there's a lot in here, I know. I, you know, I could eat it myself, you know, but I get far much 
more pleasure by sharing it out amongst my friends, you know. And so you know, your mind changes because you you give and you give and you suddenly find it just feels so good to give. And and you find it just naturally you want to give more than you want to keep something for yourself. So this is how, you know, the law of karma is it's just when you act, when you think in a particular way, you create certain habits, then it affects your life. And that's that's how we can prove a kamma. And that works both for positive things and for negative things. And, you know, you see people who get into the most um, negative and destructive kinds of situations, you know, and 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 then sometimes people can just, how did I get here? You know, how is it possible? You know, I'm living my life in exactly the opposite way than I thought than I wanted to, like 10 years ago. And and often it's not because you make the really bad choices. It's just you make small bad choices, very, very small bad choices, again and again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and suddenly, you know, from... Uh, I, I give this uh, analogy. Let, let's suppose someone is very confident of their ability to walk in a straight line, okay, without a compass, okay, and willing to take bets on it, okay? So you go out to the middle of a desert or somewhere where there's no uh, no uh, signs, no indication, and start off in the morning, okay, I'm going to walk eight hours straight ahead without a compass. And let's say um, you do it and you walk, and incredible, you know, someone comes and measures, doesn't tell you, but you're, you're only one degree off, like in a whole day of walking, you know, without a compass, without any signposts. I mean, that's pretty incredible. So next day, you do it again, and you're, you can do it again, a whole day, and you're just one degree off. Now, if you do that for 90 days, how far are you off? 90 degrees, and 180 days. 180 degrees. So from thinking you're walking north and absolutely confident you're walking in a straight line, you're walking south. You say, how am I walking south? I mean, I, I know I was walking in a straight line. I mean, I, I know, you see? And that's that's so often what happens in our life, you know, just little by little by little by little. We make these small choices and we create this comma until we're completely somewhere completely different from where we thought we we would be or we should be and this is why in buddhism we talk so much about meditation and giving some time just to come back to the present moment in a formal kind of way with your eyes closed and just to re-establish yourself on the straight path again and again and again so that you're not continually deviating from where you want to be so it's not a matter of it's not like meditation is something you do in order to get something which is peace or whatever but it's a way of just coming back to what's really going on in your life and if you're if you're completely confused when you meditate well that's a sign you know that's telling you something about how you're living your life right now you're getting some important information it's not Oh, I, you know, waste of time. I can't meditate. Whenever I meditate, my mind's all over the place. Um, 
the fact that your mind's all over the place is telling you something. You know, your life's out of balance. You know, you, uh, you're really, um, your mind's not in a sufficient state where you can make really wise life choices, you know. And a lot of things, when you just stop just for a moment, a lot of things become clear. You know, you may, be, you may think, oh, I'm not very good at meditating, but you sit there and you're just kind of a little bit calm, and just something comes up and you realize, oh, that thing I've been worrying about so much, it's just that much, it's just so small. And then another time you might be thinking, oh, that thing that I thought was really nothing, that's really dangerous, you know, I've got to stop that right now. So it's like you, you're communicating with yourself because we're so busy these days and communicating with this person and that person. And now, you know, the ability to communicate with others is at a level it's never been, in, you know, throughout history. You know, we can just, you know, if you were to tell somebody even 100 years ago, you know, you can just pick up something like this. I, I can do this. I can just press speed dial and speak with my mum in England. You know, and you tell somebody, who are you talking to? I'm talking to my mum in England. You know, a hundred years ago, people were, you know, thought you were uh, <laughs> some kind of psychic power, you know. But um, so we're used to all this. But because it's so easy, you know, we, we, we're out of balance. You know, we're constantly communicating with others and we're not communicating with ourselves. And what's this actually doing to the quality of our life and, and the kind of principles and ideals that we want to express in our life so this is why it's important just to give some time to yourself just to come back in the morning just for a few minutes just to be with your breath just to be with your body be with your mind be with yourself just to you know calmly establish yourself in mindfulness and clarity before you go off and and uh, do whatever you do during the day Okay, well, I'm, um, I think that's probably enough today. Sorry, one more question at the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the idea that um, uh, bun or punya, um, merit and purity of heart is, um, is qualitative, uh, quantitative, excuse me, um, meaning that if you give a monk a hundred baht, then you get a hundred units of merit and a thousand baht, a thousand units of merit. I mean, this is so laughable and ridiculous. Um, it's, it's shocking that there could be monks teaching this in Buddhism in Thailand and not be laughed all the way out of the country. Um, it's a sign of, you know, the decline, uh, of the, uh, sasana, um, and for, for many different reasons. No, the Buddha never made any such claim, obviously. I mean, it's common sense. Um, the Buddha said that, um, it's the, it's the purity of, it's the wish to share something with others and to give to reduce 
the suffering or to support something that is good and wise and noble. Um, and, and that, that sense of joy that you get from helping others and from sharing and giving. That's, that's the purity. And that's not going to obviously, you know, why should that be any more if you give something for a thousand baht and a hundred baht or even ten baht, you know? If it's a genuine act of kindness and generosity, then it's a beautiful thing. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just nothing to do with, with, uh, it's not like a bank in that way. And, and, uh, um, so, yeah.